I think it's safe to say that most people like Jesus. Jesus gets a lot of uh, good press, even from other religions. They seem to have some respect for Jesus. And the average person usually has nice things to say about Jesus. But too often I fear he is not the Jesus that we see in Scripture that people talk about so much. I would say that there are many Christians who misrepresent Jesus with their lives. And there are many politicians who misappropriate Jesus. Political parties that misuse Jesus. And the average person often misunderstands Jesus, who he is, his message. It's vital, it's critical that we understand who Jesus is. We begin a series today through the Gospel of Mark for that very purpose. Over these few months, as we look at this Gospel, it should help us to see Jesus more clearly and to follow him more closely. And so this morning, it's really about introducing Jesus. Many scholars believe that Mark is the oldest of the four Gospels, and that would mean that these are the first words written down about the life of Jesus. What we find in Mark's account is not a complete biography. Mark doesn't begin by saying, Jesus was born in poverty nine kilometers south in Jerusalem in the year 3 B.C. doesn't start that way. This is not a mystery with clues so that we can eventually figure out who this Jesus is. This is not a fairy tale of once upon a time. This is not a scholarly theology. The kerygma of the Zitzenleben has hermeneutical implications for the soteriological protagonist. It's not that. The first sentence of Mark, which commonly served as the title of this gospel, really tells the story. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This Jesus is God's Son. The gospel is about Him. The gospel is Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection. Gospel, of course, means good news, and apart from Jesus, there isn't any good news. And what's interesting about Mark is that he doesn't really tell us about anything or anyone except in their connection to Jesus. And that's the consuming theme of this gospel. And I want to suggest to you today that that same thing should be true of every single person who follows Jesus and every church that names his name. Unless our focus is Christ, there is no happy ending, there is no hope, there is no ultimate joy. And we must not get sidetracked or distracted or off-topic from Jesus. So as we look at how Mark introduces Jesus, I want to share with you, again, three reasons why our focus must be on Jesus, and then tell you why this matters. Three reasons why our focus must be on Jesus. First of all, because he is worthy. He's worthy. Now, I mentioned Mark doesn't bother with birth information, he starts his gospel with words from Old Testament prophets. So verse 2 and 3. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, 
I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So these are quotes from Isaiah and from Exodus and from Malachi. Why? Well, Mark wants to tie together what was happening at that very moment with the ancient word of the Lord. He wants to show that God had planned the mission of Jesus long ago and the message was coming true that before the Messiah there would be a messenger who would prepare the way for him. This messenger who would make the path straight for the Messiah, who would announce his arrival. And so that messenger is here. The one who's going to announce the Messiah has showed up. He's getting things ready. Mark ties together this ancient word of the Lord with what was happening right then. In verse 4, and so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So John the baptizer was a main attraction in his day. He was calling his people to repent, which means to turn from their sin and toward God. And for those who openly confessed their sins, they demonstrated that change of heart by getting baptized, by getting plunged underneath the water and brought back up again. With that water, these people were saying, yes, we're ready for the promised one. We're ready for this one that God has said he's, to, he's sending to save us, to redeem us. And then we have this description of verse 6, John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So John was not dressed like you would expect an important person to be attired. In fact, he looked a little strange, certainly to us and even to the people of that day. He wore a pelt of camel, uh, which uh, cinched with a leather strap, very uncomfortable. He ate locusts, very unappetizing. Uh, so you need to understand that while some say, well, this is the locust plant. No, no, no. This is locust, the bug, the insect, the critter. Uh, the, the picture of a very large grasshopper. Uh, I'm told a good source of protein and minerals. Don't want to find that out myself. Uh, Israelites did eat these on occasion when they had to. Uh, there are a variety of ways in which they were consumed when necessary. You could have them fresh or frozen or dried and salted, and a spoonful of honey would help the locusts go down, I'm sure. So why uh, mention these things? Why mention the belt, for example? Why? Because it connects John the Baptist to Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. 2 Kings chapter 1 describes Elijah as wearing a leather belt. And later Jesus calls John the Baptist, he calls him the Elijah who was to come. It's emphasizing that John is the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. Everything that God had promised is now coming true as Jesus is introduced. And verse 7, and this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So as great as John was, he was inadequate compared to Jesus. He says, I'm not worthy of untying his shoelaces. And I'm just using water. He's going to baptize you. He's going to wash you with the Holy Spirit. And notice how John emphasizes Jesus' worth. That's what worship is. It is recognizing the worth of the Lord. And until we feel like John, humbled before the, the glorious Christ, 
then we don't get it. Uh, John wasn't denigrating himself. He was exalting Jesus. And the, the truth is that when we fail to delight in Christ, we've failed to worship. So you can gather uh, here corporately with God's people, you can uh, sing songs, you can participate in communion, you can do all sorts of things, but if your focus is in the wrong place, if you're focused on what you like or don't like about a church service or about people, then you've certainly forgotten to worship during that service. If you know Jesus is worthy, you can't be half-hearted and anemic, Uh, you will be uh, exalting him. The declaration of his worth is why we gather today. And right now we're, we're able to experience just a little bit of what heaven is like, where the song will be, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Jesus Christ, the Lord, is the one who deserves our attention and honor because he is worthy. Second reason our focus must be on Jesus is because he is authentic. He's authentic. Uh, I would think most of you have heard the name Banksy by now. Banksy is that artist who's basically anonymous, who's producing all sorts of of street art and others, and recently had something go on with an auction house. Uh, But uh, you you might know this too. Some years ago, uh, Banksy counterfeited uh, 10-pound, British 10-pound notes. He, He didn't make them to say, this is money. He counterfeited them away as art. And in the place of the queen, he put uh, Princess Di. And, and then he took these counterfeited 10-pound notes reportedly and threw them out into a crowd of people where they were gobbled up. And now they are collector's items. And each one of those 10-pound notes is worth hundreds of pounds each. And because they are valuable, there are people who have attempted to fake those counterfeit notes and to sell those. And so they have to be authenticated by uh, an art uh, expert to say, yes, this is, a, this is a counterfeit Banksy counterfeit, or this is a Banksy counterfeit that's genuine. Value is based on authenticity. The value of Jesus is based on his authenticity. And that's what happens next. It, it's authenticating Jesus. Now, while Mark starts out his gospel right from the beginning saying, Jesus is the Son of God, he now includes scenes that authenticate Jesus' divinity, the fact that he is God in human flesh. And the very first scene that emphasizes that is the baptism of Jesus. At that time, verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. If you read the other Gospels, you recognize that John felt that Jesus should be baptizing him rather than the other way around. But Jesus' baptism was necessary for reasons of identification. While Jesus went into the water like everyone else, he didn't say anything because he had no sin to confess. But but he was baptized to reveal himself to Israel, to fulfill prophecy, to identify with us. He was plunged under the water and raised up. And what happens is an enormously important time in biblical history. Verse 10, as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. Now, many, many people were baptized by John. 
the, the, the crowds came to be baptized by John. But only this one time did something so dramatic happen. Heaven was ripped open. The Spirit descended, gently settling upon Jesus. And God the Father's voice gave approval to His Son. This is the public moment when Jesus is authenticated. According to John 133, this scene is what caused John the Baptist to know for certain that Jesus was the Son of God. And in Mark's Gospel record, he doesn't bother with Bethlehem. He goes right to the point where Jesus is authenticated. Right from the beginning, we know who he is. This is a defining moment. Jesus is no ordinary man. There are cosmic consequences. God has arrived in human form, and immediately, Jesus is tested. Immediately, verse 12. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. So I want you to notice that the same Spirit who rested on Jesus at his baptism threw him, compelled him, pushed him out into the desert. Jesus had no time to enjoy the approval of the Father. No sooner is he dramatically authenticated than he's expelled out into the wasteland. See, Jesus did not come to this earth to spout spiritual sayings. He was on a mission that would take him to the cross to die for the sin of the world. And let me pause here to remind you that this pattern of testing is there from Genesis to Revelation. Anything God does that is good will be threatened by the enemy. Testing and temptation are a part of the spiritual life. You can expect that whenever you take a step forward in your spiritual life, it will be tested, or you will face temptation. Don't let that surprise you. Don't let that sidetrack you. This incident in Jesus' life shows that you can pass the test. Now, please understand that temptation does not come from God. The Bible's very clear about this. No, your temptation comes from one of two sources. Uh, Either Satan himself, the enemy, or your own sinful desire. That's where temptation comes from. Because the point of temptation is to lure you into disobedience. So let nobody say, James says, that God tempts anyone because he doesn't tempt anyone to sin. Temptation is about attracting you towards sin and God doesn't tempt. What God does is test. God tests. God tests to improve and approve. And a test is uh, a way to Prove obedient. It's aimed at certifying, improving, approving, and verifying. Over the last several weeks, I've been to the eye doctor three times. Uh, And and the first time, trying to get uh, lenses, uh, my my eye exam. So I go in the little room, and I go through the whole thing of, okay, which is better, the first one or the second one? Show me those again. The first one or the second one? This one or that one? And so it goes on and on. We finally narrow it down. I felt like I'm doing the exam, but that's beside the point. And so they get some lenses, and then he says, okay, now, he takes me out of the room, and he, he says, now, look across the street. Can you read that sign? What sign? <laughs> that sign. I said, can you read it? And he said, yes, I can. Let's go back into the examination room. And so we went back in and he got me another set of lenses and we went back and I could read the sign. Now, that is a test, not a temptation. A test is to figure out, okay, uh, we we want you to pass. We want you to be able to see. We want to improve. Uh, A test is about uh, uh, 
proving your capability and ability. Testing is what God does. So when Jesus was led out into the desert, it was a God-ordered test. But the devil came as a tempter. The Father's aim was to certify Jesus. The devil's aim was to discredit Jesus. God uses tests to prove us. Satan tempts to disprove us. And those 40 days in the desert were about Satan tempting Jesus, trying to divert him from his mission. But in the wilderness, without food, harassed by the devil and wild animals, Jesus succeeded. Faced with with danger and loneliness and deprivation, Jesus prevailed. And, and, And so it proved his authenticity. He's the genuine article. He's everything he claimed to be, the Son of God. And knowing that Jesus is authentic is what gives meaning and purpose to life. If Jesus is not who he says he is, then we don't have ultimate meaning. We don't have ultimate purpose. Apart from Christ, we're living for ourselves. Apart from Christ, we're just finding ways to survive and to be successful and comfortable and to keep distracted until we die. But Jesus is authentic. Third reason why our focus must be Jesus is because he's the good news. He's the good news. I was part of a number of different prayer groups, small prayer groups. And uh, one of those, there was maybe four or five of us that early on a weekday morning we would gather for prayer uh, in the church before uh, heading off to to work. And, And over the course of a year or so together, that group grew very close as we prayed uh, for and with one another. One of them was, uh, it was a guy just out of college, and, and uh, it was a challenge for him to get there. Uh, he was used to sleeping into, you know, through breakfast and through his first class. So this was a challenge for him to get there, and he would show up, his hair would be all messed up, and it would be disheveled, but he'd be there every time. He'd just maybe be right there on time or just a little late. One morning, and I, was, I usually get there 15 minutes early to open up, turn the lights on, and and uh, I just got in there, turned the lights on, and, and this guy burst in. And he's so excited. And he says, I've got good news. We're going to Hawaii. And I thought, boy, that, that is good news. I, I know we've gotten close through the, the last year, but, but uh, man, Hawaii. I said, are you kidding me? I said, when? He said, we're leaving next week, so I won't be here. And that was when I realized, oh, he didn't mean me with we. He meant he. And so, yes, it was good news, but it would have been a whole lot more good news if I had been included. Now, when Jesus says what he says, it's good news for everyone. Verse 15, the time has come, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus was announcing a definitive moment in history. He was telling people, here's your chance to turn from sin and believe. And in the person of Christ, God invaded this world to call a people for himself. By his death and resurrection, he made it possible for for our fatal sickness of sin to be healed, our broken relationship with God to be restored. Jesus is the embodiment of all of God's promises, and all who turn and believe in him are, are a part of that good news. Through Christ, God has made it possible for us to know the living God, to be forgiven, and to enjoy him forever. And that is the embodiment of good news. He goes on to to share this and to call people to himself. Verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I'll make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. These are average, ordinary, working guys. 
going about their everyday life, and Jesus calls, and they respond. They become his first followers, and they do it immediately. That, that's a word Mark loves to use. He likes to describe quick action. Mark frequently uses this, this Greek word, euthos, uh, in his account of Jesus. And, and the, in our English Bibles, that word is translated a variety of ways, like at once, or straight away, or without delay, or immediately. Mark uses it at least 40 times in his gospel. And one of those times is there in verse 18, and, and again in verse 20, to describe the response of the first disciples to the call of Jesus. They didn't offer any excuses. They didn't ask any questions. They didn't look for any counteroffers. They immediately left everything and followed Jesus. Verses 19 and 20, James and John also called, added to the group. They immediately followed Jesus. Jesus doesn't do a miracle to convince them. He simply calls and they follow. Why? Because he had the words of life. Why? Because he was the good news. And those who understand the truth about Jesus are ready to leave everything behind and join him because he is the only good news. Jesus is still calling disciples today, and some of you are waiting for a better time. Some of you are waiting for a bigger miracle. Some of you are waiting for a better offer. But if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation, Scripture says. Today is the day. So our focus must be Jesus. It must be Jesus because he's worthy, he's authentic, he's the good news. And you came here this morning with something on your mind. Maybe many things. Maybe you're consumed with planning. Maybe you're anxious about your job. Maybe you're worried about your health, what the doctor's going to say tomorrow. Maybe you struggle with loneliness or, or feelings of rejection. Maybe you're experiencing pain and you're trying to soothe that pain or, or fill that emptiness with busyness or friends or pills or hobby or success or shopping or alcohol or porn or food or work. And maybe you're overwhelmed with a sense of, 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 of failure, of disappointment, and things aren't going the way that you hope. Well, whatever is happening in your life today, the answer is Jesus. Dwell on him. Leave everything to him and follow him. Your responsibilities, your worries, your issues are secondary to that. Perhaps you're consumed with a troubled marriage. And if you, you think this, if I could just get that fixed, everything else would be fine. All that matters really is where you've put Jesus. Don't put your marriage above Jesus. Don't put your personal happiness above Jesus. Will you love him anyway, even if that relationship doesn't get fixed the way you want it? Will you cling to Christ anyway, even if you don't experience happiness, even if that job doesn't come through? Maybe you're overwhelmed with life. Uh, the, there's great stress from your job, for, from your debts, from your schedule, from your family, your health, your house, whatever. Is it possible that you've allowed those things to push Jesus to the side? In my very first Sunday here as your pastor, I made this promise. I said, every message God allows me to deliver here will never fail to point to Jesus the Christ. And from Genesis to Revelation, we will always look to discover more of the glory of Christ. Uh, John Flavel, who's 400 years ago was a, was a pastor, uh, he, he wrote this, Christ shall be the center to which all lines of my ministry are drawn. That is my passion. That is my desire. That should be the desire for our lives as well. Every one of us who names the, the name of Jesus, the centrality of Jesus is my great passion. Now, I, I've shared with you before that, that my father, who was a pastor, warned me from the beginning about wedding photographers. He said, 
John, they, they are out to cause problems. There might be a couple good ones, but I haven't met them yet. I, I didn't really fully understand. He said, you, you, you need to make sure that you don't let a wedding photographer destroy the wedding, the holy sacred moment of a, of a wedding ceremony. Well, it wasn't long. I, I, my, my first wedding, uh, the photographer was at the, the back of the church taking pictures as each member of the, the party entered, and then suddenly he realized that he needed to be up front to capture that moment when the bride came down the aisle. And so he started slinging camera equipment over his shoulders, and he sprinted down the center aisle, making quite a spectacle of himself so that he could get into position. But in a wedding not long after that, it's the one that got me the most, really. See, the photographer was trying to be inconspicuous. There was this low railing in front of the choir at the front of the church, and I was standing in front of that railing, and as the ceremony was going on, and I'm saying these sacred holy words, I, I see out of the corner of my eye the door to the choir loft open. And then I can hear somebody crawling. And I understand that this photographer is crawling down behind that railing, and then he sticks up his head and takes a picture and goes back down. Scuttle, 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 stick his head up, take another picture, goes back down. Uh, I, there, there have been moments where it's like, I just want to grab a photographer by the collar, lift him in the air and say, it's not about you. This is, uh, weddings are a legal, spiritual, public joining together of two lives, not primarily a photo opportunity. And there's been at least one mother of the bride that I wanted to do that to as well. But I haven't done it. To understand who the real star is, what the real focus is, it's not about you. See, that's a little bit what it's like to be a pastor you got to make sure that nothing gets in the way of the good news of Jesus. Nothing. And there are so many good things, and there are so many distractions. But there's no access to God except through Jesus. There's no gospel apart from Jesus. We have nothing to sing about without Jesus. Anything less is a distraction. All other ground is sinking sand. So here's what I want to end today. To, to say that it's not about your marriage, your bank account, your life management skills. It's not about drums or pipe organs, choirs or praise bands. It's not about the Bible church, the Baptist church, Lakewood church or cowboy church. It's not about small groups, support groups, life groups, prayer groups or recovery groups. It's not about your career path, your college degree or your cash flow. It's not about vision statements, mission statements, purpose statements, or financial statements. It's not about Republicans, Democrats, socialists, independents, or libertarians. It's not about social media, news media, or multimedia. It's not about traditional worship, contemporary worship, blended worship, blue crash, liturgical, ultra-modern worship. It's not about big churches, small churches, hipster churches, home churches, or parachurches. It's about Jesus. Here he is, the genuine reality. Take him or leave him. It's futile to make sense of life apart from him. It's impossible to find forgiveness or hold on to hope apart from him. I don't know how you're feeling today. You could be overwhelmed. You could be wounded, unappreciated, exasperated, discouraged. Let me remind you that it's all about Jesus. 
He must increase, John said, and I must decrease. And unless Jesus is your greatest desire, your priorities are wrong. Unless he is your hope, you are lost. Unless he is your focus, you are drifting. Unless he is your joy, your happiness is misplaced. Yes, there is a Savior who is worthy, authentic, and good news, and his name is Jesus. Thanks be to God.